0: This morning, I want you to join me in a time machine. We're stepping in this time machine, and we're going back to the year 2004. And when you step out of this time machine, you'll notice there's no developments here on Eagle Road. It's all grass. It's all fields. Except for Living Hope Bible Church. But you'll also notice this tall, kind of lanky kid. We're going to call him Junior High Ryan. That was me. My nickname was Yao for the basketball player Yao Ming. I was six feet tall, way taller than everybody else. That was the only edge I had when I was playing basketball. And so junior high Ryan, he liked basketball. He also played drums. He was in the jazz band, he was in the regular band, he was in the jazz choir. Well, there's this girl in the jazz choir, the junior high Ryan, he thought she was pretty cute. He kinda liked her, but he was scared, he was nervous. He was shy to talk to her. Well, eventually he mustered up the courage and he talked to this girl and they kind of had chemistry. And so then he had a plan in his mind. I was gonna do the unthinkable. I was gonna ask this girl if she wanted to play a video game with me at Pojo's, all right? Pojo's Family Fun Center, still there. And so I mustered up the courage and she said yes. And so junior high Ryan was so excited, he went home. He got his best Hollister polo out, his big baggy cargo shorts, his shoes, because that was cool back then. And he got ready. He couldn't drive, so he had his dad drive him to this girl's house. You know, we're going to have a chaperone on this date, if you want to even call it that. And I knocked on the door, and nothing. So maybe she didn't hear, you know, knocked again. Nothing. Nothing. Rang the doorbell, nothing. And I was starting to get panicked here. I was starting to freak out. I went and got my old super big flip phone, pressed the number, come on, answer. Nothing. And so junior high Ryan was a changed man that day. (laughs) He left that doorstep jaded and cynical with modern romance. (laughs) Now, what we would call the experience I went through is I was stood up. Right? I went to the door, no one was there, but the beauty of 2003-2004 is I'd have to encounter this person again. I'd see her at school, I asked her, hey, I guess we mixed up the times, right? And Yeah, and then nothing really happened, you know, it's just a way out of it. There's a similar but new phenomenon today that people deal with. It's called being ghosted. In our new age of technological advancement of social media, of Facebook, Instagram, even online dating, it's something that can happen to you with romantic relationships or platonic ones. You're ghosted. Maybe you've been ghosted. Maybe you're the ghostee. maybe you're the ghoster. But basically it's a way to end a connection by just completely vanishing, cutting off all different modes or means of communication. So talk about technological advancement, right? Back in my day, I know that makes me sound really old, you'd have to talk to someone or at least have your friend go and you know break up with the person for you. But now you can just ghost, leave them alone, never speak to them again. And that phenomena of ghosting, if we're honest, sometimes it feels like it feels like God has ghosted us. When we're dealing with difficulty, when we're in a hard situation. Maybe it's a situation where we don't know what to do, and we're praying for God to help us, for God to show us some way out, and nothing. It feels like he's just leaving us out. You go to the doctor's office, and the word terminal is thrown around. You see your spouse, your son, your daughter, your mother, your father, your friend, your family member, somebody that seemed to have a profession of faith walk away from the faith, and you don't know what to do. You're asking God, God, please help, and Then there's nothing. It feels like you're ghosted. And in those moments where we feel like God isn't with us, even though He promises He is in the Bible, when we feel like He's left us alone, we can feel despair. We can feel frustration. God, where are you at? And it's in those tough times, in those difficult circumstances, we want the love, the joy, the peace, the patience, the kindness that are fruits of the Spirit, but they seem elusive and far from us. So today I want to tackle the question, how do we feel hope when we feel like God isn't responding? What do we do when we know he has the power and we know he has the authority to do something but he seems like he doesn't? What do you do when God seems to have left you on red? Well, today we're going to look at Matthew chapter 8 verses 1 through 17 and we'll see how to answer that question. Matthew chapter eight, verses one through 17. And if you've been with us the last couple of months, here at Living Hope, we've been going through Jesus's most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. And Pastor Chris wrapped it up a few weeks ago when Jesus laid this bombshell about two houses, one built on sand and one built on the rock. Basically a call to action, which will you choose? And then the last two verses of chapter seven, it says, when Jesus finished these things, the crowds were astonished. And they were astonished because he was teaching them as one who had authority. See, back then, other scribes, they would cite their sources before they talked. So we would love them today in an age where everyone wants to know your source and where are you getting this information. Back then, when they talked about the Old Testament, they would show how it relates to God in some way. But Jesus didn't do either of those things. Jesus talked as if he had the authority. He didn't need to quote his sources. And Jesus said, the Old Testament points to me. So this is a bold, audacious claim. So when we enter into chapter eight, if somebody makes that kind of statement, if somebody makes that kind of claim, you wanna make sure that it's credible. You want them to back up what they are saying. And in three episodes, we see Jesus back up his authority, back up his claims of what he was saying. So follow along with me as we begin in verse one. The word of God says, when he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. But only say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And I say to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her and she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with the word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, he took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Amen. In this text, we're going to learn two truths about Jesus' authority. Two truths about his authority. And we see the first truth about Jesus' authority is that it's more powerful than anything else. Jesus' authority more powerful than anything else. Jesus would win the World's Strongest Man competition back to back to back to back to back at infinitum. (laughs) Jesus would win it. Now, when we look at this text, it's easy to break these episodes into little mini devotionals or sermonettes. But I wanna propose to you that Matthew integrates these, and so we're gonna integrate them as well. The first thing that we see Jesus have power over is natural sickness. In the very first episode here, Jesus is with a leper. Now back then, leprosy was no joke. It was basically a death sentence. You know, the equivalency of the seriousness that they treated leprosy is how we treat AIDS today. It's a serious disease, it's no joke. And Jesus sees this disease-ridden, bacteria-filled man come to him. And Jesus doesn't run away. He doesn't hide. He's not scared. He can't do anything about it. The man asks to be cleansed, and Jesus says, I will be clean. And he cleans this man. Nothing is too powerful for Jesus. Even the disease that's considered incurable, Jesus can cure. He has power there. But we see another feat of strength In the second episode with the Roman centurion, the Roman comes to Jesus and asks him to heal his servant. But this is what's crazy. Jesus is marveled by this Roman centurion's faith, and he heals his servant from a distance. He wasn't there in the house with the servant. So it'd be like if someone was seriously sick here, and we had someone in downtown Boise, who we don't know is there, who we don't know who it is, Pray, and then all of a sudden, someone here becomes healed. Amazing power. Just with his words, he could do that. In the third episode, we see Jesus heal Peter's mother in law. But in verse 16, it says, many others who were oppressed by demons came, many others who were sick. So, over and over, we see Jesus' power over natural forces and also spiritual forces when it comes to these demons that he's exercising. But the third thing that Jesus has power over, another force is cultural forces. It's the barriers that we set up sometimes as societies. Because when you think of these three episodes, we have to understand who Jesus is interacting with. The first is the leper. You know, we had to quarantine in 2020, but it was nothing compared to what these lepers had to go through. It was a life sentence. They were quarantined from society. It was a contagious disease, a brutal disease that you could get if you were close or if you were touched. So imagine this leper kneeling before Jesus, knowing Jesus can heal him. In the next episode, we see Jesus can heal just by speaking. But what does Jesus do? He touches the man also. If you put yourself in that man's shoes, imagine the last time he felt human contact, human touch. It could have been months. It could have been years could have been a decade, not from his wife, not from his kids, not from friends. I mean, I'm not a real touchy-feely guy, but no human contact whatsoever? That's horrible. And Jesus here shows us a glimpse of his character, his compassion. He could have stayed at a distance. He could have looked scared. He could have said, whoa, whoa, stay right there. Six feet, right? Stay right there. I'm not going to touch you, but I'll heal you. But instead, he shows compassion. He comes to him And it's a great picture of us if we feel filthy, if we feel dirty, if we feel shame from something in our lives. Jesus doesn't stay at a distance. We don't need to clean ourselves up. He comes to us. He has compassion for us. The next person he interacts with is a Roman centurion, the epitome of the Romans having power and authority over the Jewish people. This guy was one of the bad guys. He would not have been looked upon nicely by the Jewish community. He's a symbol that someone has power over them. And it's shocking when Jesus says that this outsider could actually become an insider. That wouldn't have gone over well. That would have blown people's minds. That would have been a cultural taboo. The last thing we see Peter interact with is or Jesus interact with is Peter's mother-in-law. And we know back then that women were considered second-class citizens. Their testimony wouldn't be held up in court even. And yet, Jesus interacts with this woman. He touches her. He heals her as well. So, Jesus has power over all forces natural, spiritual, even cultural or social forces. And we need to remember this because it's easy to forget. You know, I want you to picture a power strip. I love power strips. You love power strips? Makes one outlet, five outlets. You can make your uh, electrician friend sweat or your firefighter sweat by plugging in you know, space heaters and all sorts of stuff that shouldn't go into power strips into power strips. Well, imagine you have a power strip and you're plugging in a lamp, you're plugging in your phone, your TV, just for fun, let's say a high wattage space heater in there too. And you turn on the buttons and you turn on the on and off switch and it's not working. So you're frustrated. You say, what's going on? I'm pressing on and off. You get more mad. You know, you're really banging your phone there with your finger. Come on, turn on. It doesn't turn on. And then you look down and you realize, I didn't plug the power strip in. Right? The power strip has no power in itself. It's a conduit. It doesn't power up any of these things. It needs to be plugged into the source of power. And when it comes to our spiritual lives, when it comes to our spiritual growth, sometimes even when it comes to life's difficult circumstances, that's how we treat God, like the power strip. You know, we come up with the best strategies, the best tactics. We want a revival here in the Treasure Valley, in Boise, in Meridian. We want people to come to faith and know Jesus. And so we can strategize, we can plan the best events, like the harvest. We can have church barbecues and picnics and breakfasts. We can think for our spiritual growth, we need the absolute best Bible teachers, the best commentaries, the best curriculum, the best of the best to grow. For our kids, we can vet every possible strand of education they could get, every single church program, a WANA program. And sometimes we put all of our faith in these things like it's the power strip. But the reality is, while those things are good, and we should think through that, Our only hope for change, our only hope is the power of Jesus Christ. It's in Jesus alone, even in our hard circumstances that we face. It's good to make plans, it's good to think things through, but we need to realize that ultimately it's powerless without Jesus. You know, gimmicks are bad, strategy is good, but faith is absolutely crucial. And this touches all areas of life, Even here at church, even the pulpit, myself, Pastor Chris, Pastor MJ, Pastor Matt, we don't have any power in ourselves. Our hope isn't built on some personality. None of us could be here. I might even be here. But we could truly know that our church is secure because our hope is in Jesus. So we know the first thing, that Jesus' authority is greater than everything. He has power over all. The second thing we learn about Jesus's authority is it's used to give and not gain. Jesus's authority is used to give and not gain. Now, when we look at these episodes, I've seen the one with the centurion is the longest, and he shows to have a remarkable understanding of Jesus's mission. In verse eight, the centurion says, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. And so this soldier, he's drawing an analogy from his experience. In verse nine, he says, I'm under authority. He's under the authority of the Roman emperor, but he also has authority. See, in that military, all authority was vested in the emperor and it trickled down. And so when this man gives orders to his soldiers, they don't just hear this centurion speaking, they hear the emperor. If they go and they, if he says go and they don't go, if they disobey, they're not just disobeying a man, they're disobeying the emperor. When he speaks, Rome speaks. And he understands this is who Jesus is as well. Jesus was sent here on a mission. He came to save people from their sins. We read that earlier in Matthew. Jesus was under the authority of God the Father. He did the Father's will. He's fully God. And yet, He also has authority as God to do miraculous things. And this centurion understands that. He understands the authority Jesus has and the authority Jesus is under. That's why Jesus is marveled by this man's faith. And, you know, this idea of authority and doing the Father's will and these healings, it all is wrapped up with a nice bow in the last verse of our passage today. Verse 17. Verse 17. It says, This, these healings of Peter's mother-in-law, of exercising demons, but also of the leper and the centurion, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. So Matthew's doing what he's done over and over and over and over again. He wants you to know that Jesus fulfills what was written hundreds and thousands of years before in the Old Testament. He fulfills prophecy. And what's interesting is this verse is from Isaiah 53, probably the most famous chapter in the Old Testament, or at least one of them. We quoted it last week on Good Friday and Easter because it talks about a servant who will come and sacrifice himself to heal and save others. And so all throughout the New Testament, it's linked to Jesus's death on the cross, his sacrifice for us on the cross. But what's interesting right here is Matthew seems to say that Jesus takes our illnesses and our diseases by healing them in his life. He doesn't link it to the cross explicitly. So what is he doing here? Well, I want to explain that to you. And so hang with me. It can get a little deep. But I promise you, it's important, it's practical, and it might give you an understanding of Matthew that you haven't had before. So when we see sickness, when we see these illnesses, all sickness, all illness, all disease is indirectly or directly a result of sin. God didn't create it. In the world God created, there was no disease, there was no cancer, there's no sickness, there's no pneumonia, there's no anything. And when man decided to do their own thing, be their own God, say they know better, when sin entered the world and the curse of sin, so did illnesses and disease. So they're all linked to sin in that way. And if you read the Old Testament, it talks about a time that will come when there will be no more sickness, when there will be no more disease, when there will be no more pain, when the curse of sin will be removed, when the suffering will be gone. And we know that hope is coming forward. Well, Matthew tells us that Jesus is the king. He's kicking off God's kingdom program. We've talked about the kingdom of God a lot through our sermon series. And we say that while God has the authority over the cosmos, over the world, the kingdom of God is the visible demonstration of his rule here on earth when we visibly see that. And our hope is we know one day that that kingdom of God, it will cover the whole globe, that this globe will get a really big makeover, an extreme makeover, it will be renewed, and heaven will be us living on a renewed earth with God forever. It's not some place up in the sky in some choir loft in the clouds. It's a renewed earth that we will be with God on where there will be no more sickness, no more disease, no more death, no more pain. And so here's the point. Jesus is the king. Jesus kicks off this kingdom program, and it's only possible if you deal with the root problem, if you deal with sin. When Jesus died for sin that we celebrated on Good Friday and rose again, defeating death, he removed the curse. He had victory over sin. It's certain, and in one day it will come in its fullness. And so we see right here that Matthew's telling us when Jesus heals people, it's not just to flex his power. It's not just to vindicate or validate his message. What Jesus is doing is giving us little glimpses, little sneak previews of that kingdom that we will live in if you have faith in Christ. A little glimpse of what life will be like there. No more sickness, no more disease, no more death. And so while that's rattling around in your brain, I'll give you one more thing to think about. If this is who Jesus is, if He's the King who has brought the kingdom, its fullness is still yet to come, if He's died to sin and because he's atoned for sin, all these different benefits, including no more sickness, because that's a result of sin, is in our world, then we have to ask that, what are miracles really? Really, what are miracles? A lot of times we think miracles are a disruption in the natural world. but if Jesus is the redeemer who is restoring our relationship with God, revealing who God is. If he's coming to make things and life in this world and the cosmos as it should have been, then really his miracles are just showing us what the natural should be like. The real interruptions in our lives are the sickness, the disease, the death. These weren't supposed to be here. These are, in a real sense, unnatural. A really good picture of this comes from C.S. Lewis. In C.S. Lewis's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there's a fantasy land named Narnia, and it's under the curse of the white witch, and it's always winter there. So if you like sun, you wouldn't wanna go to Narnia. Bad place to be. Well, in this story, there's a prophecy that goes something like this. It says, wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrow will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. And later in the story, one of the main characters is captured. His name's Edmund. And he notices one day that the witch, she's having a hard time getting her sleigh going. It wasn't the igniter, it wasn't the starter. It was the fact that the snow on the ground was starting to melt, become a little mushy, harder to go in. And all of a sudden, he started to see different colors a little bit on the leaves and in the trees. And if you looked down, you could see grass starting to spring up out of the snow. It was a sign that spring was coming. that Aslan was on the move. And for us today, we're right in the middle of that springtime. It hits home for us. And I love how this is really an analogy of this concept. You know, we're under the curse of sin. In a lot of ways, it's eternally winter here. But Jesus comes to redeem things, to break that curse, and he has. And we see subtle ways and sometimes dramatic ways that that kingdom is coming and it will continue to come. You know, most of the times, it's subtle. It's a sign of the kingdom of God when We turn to Jesus when we turn to God in faith. When we can forgive our enemies, when we can turn the other cheek, when we have those fruits of the Spirit—love, joy, peace, patience, and kindness—we live in a chaotic world. These are all signs of Jesus's work, and that it will come to completion. And every once in a while, we see dramatic signs as well. You know, you might see subtle signs in nature when a stream that's frozen slowly melts. Or when every day gets a little bit warmer, a little bit warmer, that spring, that summertime's coming. Well, sometimes you also have a glacier start to melt and a huge chunk of ice fall into the ocean. A dramatic sign that things are getting warmer. And in our world, sometimes we see dramatic indications of this kingdom. You know, I've heard of stories of someone having stage three, stage four cancer. They go in, they get it screened, and it's just gone. Miraculous display of what God is doing. And so practically, when we think about this, when we read this, I think a question pops in a lot of our minds. When we read about Jesus's healing, when we read about him healing the sick, we wonder why? Why, God? What about my spouse? What about my friend? What about my neighbor? Why don't you heal them? Why don't they get better? Why not just do this all the time? What's going on? We wonder why, and a lot of times we like to blame someone. You know, in some churches, some Pentecostal churches, they'll blame you. They'll say, well, you're not getting better because you don't have enough faith. They throw you back on yourself. You need to have more. You're shamed for not having the faith that you need. And we almost treat God like a vending machine. If I have enough faith that I put in, then he'll give me what I want. That's not good theology. That's not true. We can make the opposite mistake, too. We think, well, it's pointless to ask God to help heal this sickness, to help heal this. He won't do it. There's no use. What's the point? That's an equally opposite error. We must realize that the true blame, you could say, not putting it on ourselves, not putting it on God like he's mean and cruel because he hasn't done it or he can't do it, The true blame for illness, for disease, for sickness, it's sin. Sin is to blame for it. And I'm going to give you a guarantee today, a 100% guarantee. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ, whether you're dealing with physical, mental and emotional, psychological, whatever it is, if you're dealing with illness, with pain, with suffering, I 100% guarantee you, you will be healed. You'll be healed, 100% guarantee. The question isn't if, the real question is when. When will that happen? Because Jesus' death, he died for your sins if you put your faith in him. That atonement means that you will be healed. It's secured in his death. Sometimes, rarely, we see it happen here, but it's guaranteed for the future. And so we can have that hope knowing that God will make this right. This won't be forever. That still begs the question, though, how's that fair? Why? This person still gets better. Why do I have to deal with this? That person gets better. Why do I have to deal with this? Wouldn't God be more glorified if he made everybody better right now? I understand that. That's a tough thing that we have to deal with as Christians. I've seen pretty terrible illness in my own family. I've seen it in other people. It makes you wonder why this isn't fair but I want to propose this. I think it takes more faith not to be healed. And I think it can glorify God even more if you're not. Because in those moments and you've prayed, do you still believe in his goodness? Like the leper, like the centurion, do you believe God has the power, but will you humbly submit to the fact that maybe the timing isn't right now? Will you still show and tell people of God's goodness? Will you still cling to that, even if it's a struggle? I'll tell you, I've been incredibly inspired and convicted and encouraged by people who have had a lot of suffering in their life, by people who've had disability and disease. And by the world standards, people would say, curse God and die like Job's friends. Why even bother? He did this to you. How could you even say that about him? And yet they hold true to their faith. They praise God. They have a joy that's hard to imagine. And for me, God is glorified in that. That's a powerful, powerful testimony to God's goodness and a challenge to all of us. And so while God has the power, while he has authority over all things, and while we know he uses it to give and for our good, cling to that hope that if you put your faith in Jesus, you will be healed. It's not if. It's when. So what can we do? How can we respond to this? We need to humbly trust the one who uses his authority for good. Humbly trust the one who uses his authority for good. You know, Jesus says something startling in this passage. After the centurion shows his incredible faith, Jesus flips the tables on many people. In verse 11, he says, I tell you, many will come from the east and the west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Many outsiders will be insiders with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the fathers of the faith, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. The people who thought they had an automatic guarantee, the people who thought they were a shoe-in, they might not be. And so for us today, there's no absolute automatic guarantee that you have that relationship with God restored. It doesn't matter how many times you go to church. It doesn't matter how much tithing you give. It doesn't matter how much service you do. There's only one secure hope, and that's putting your faith in Jesus Christ. So if you haven't done that in your life, do it today. Do it now. Realize that you are a sinner. You've wanted to live life on your own terms instead of on the terms of the God of all creation. That's sin, you're a sinner. That's treason on a cosmic level. The Bible says the punishment, the wages, the consequences of that is death. That's where every single person is headed. We can't get ourselves out, we can't dig ourselves out of the hole this deep. The only hope we have is by realizing that God didn't leave us in that state. He sent his son, fully God, fully man, to live a perfect life and die for our sins and raise again three days later. Dying to sin, breaking the power of the curse and even breaking the power of death itself. And Jesus says your relationship with God can be restored if you put your faith in me. Your relationship with God is restored and you'll live on that new heaven, new earth with God forever where there'll be no more sickness, no more pain, no more death. For those of you who have made that decision, I was thinking as I was driving on Eagle Road, I do it every day, driving into church today, we have all these signs of springtime. These trees that are in blossom, flowers may be blooming in your flower beds if you planted them after the big freeze. (laughs) Warmer weather. And when you see these things, let that be a signal, let that be a trigger for you to thank God for his goodness and that he's renewing all things. Say, Lord, thank you for your goodness that you're redeeming this, may I humbly submit to you. When you see the trees outside as you're walking in a church, Lord, thank you for your goodness that you're renewing things, may I humbly submit to you. When you're driving your driveway, Lord, thank you for your goodness for renewing things, may I humbly submit to you. It's a posture of our heart. We know God has the power. I think it's easier for us to trust in an all-powerful God than an all-loving and good God. Right we see power in our world and many times we see the corruption that that power brings but i'll tell you god is all powerful and he is all good trust in his goodness trust in his power humbly submit to him this leper in our story he didn't ask jesus a question he didn't say can you heal he see he said lord if you will you can make me clean trusted in god's power but was humble said if you will same thing with the centurion. That's the attitude we need to resemble. You know, a person who's been very inspiring to me and really embodying this would be Johnny Erickson Tada. She is a Christian speaker. She's written some books, and she was born healthy. She was into cliff jumping and diving. One day she dove in, and it was too shallow, and she broke her neck and became paralyzed. If you read the story of her life, She prayed over and over and over for God's healing, and it didn't happen, she became angry. She went to these faith healing services where it was thrown back on her that, well, you don't have enough faith, and she got more and more angry and more and more cynical. But as she read the Bible, as she trusted in God, her heart changed, her life changed, and now she says this. She says, "'I hope I can bring my wheelchair to heaven.'" I know that's not theologically correct, But I hope I could wheel it up to Jesus, hold his nail-pierced hands, and say this. Jesus, see this wheelchair? You were right when you said in this world we would have trouble. This wheelchair was a lot of trouble. But the weaker I was, the harder I leaned on you. And the harder I leaned on you, the stronger I learned you were. Thank you for giving me this bruising of a blessing. My wheelchair showed me a side of your grace that I would never have seen otherwise. And she says, I find it so poignant that at the point when I finally do have the use of my arms and I finally could wipe away my own tears, I won't even have to. God will wipe them away for me and he will do the same to each of you. That is amazing hope amidst suffering, trusting in God's authority above all else, but also realizing he uses it for the good of others to give to other people. Jesus wasn't lying. He said, in this world, you will have trouble. We can count on it. We can bank on it. And it might look different for each and every one of us. And in those moments, it'll be tempting to think that God ghosted us, that he's out, that he doesn't care, that he's not listening. But remember these stories. Remember who Jesus is, who God is. Remember that the spring is coming, as C.S. Lewis would say. The kingdom has been started. Its fullness will come. It's guaranteed our suffering and pain in this life will be healed. Not if, but when. So trust in the Savior and know that the spring is coming. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this day. Father, we thank you for this amazing message that we know that you are good, that you are holy, that you are faithful. And Father, uh, I thank you for your sustaining grace for each and every one of us. I pray that when we doubt in your goodness, that when we doubt your power, that we'd say we believe. Help our unbelief, Lord. God, I pray for those who are hurting this morning, listening to this, that you'd comfort them, that you'd care for them, and that they would know that you truly, truly, Lord, love, care, and protect them. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.